0: Back in the 1970s, the Atlanta Journal newspaper, several times a week, for years, published this column called The Georgia Rambler. Charles Salter wrote the column. Basically, he would get up in the morning, say goodbye to his wife Sally, get in his car, and head out on the road to some small town, sometimes without much of a plan at all, not even sure where he's going to end up.
1: I would look at a Georgia highway map, and Sally would say, honey, where are you going this morning? And I said, I think I'll go east. And I would go over to a town... 50, 80, 100 miles from Atlanta and I would see the county agent or the cafe where the guys and gals would gather to drink coffee and talk and I'd say, y'all have probably read Reader's Digest for a long time they had an article called The Most Unforgettable Person I Ever Met. Well, here in your town, who is the most unforgettable person you ever met? Who would you talk about if you were in a convention thousand miles away? I wish you fellas could know so-and-so back home. I was seeking good stories from ordinary folks. There was the 55-year-old man who never wore shoes, and the
0: pharmacist who discovered in an old ledger what seemed to be a recipe for Coca-Cola, and the country father of five who told George Georgia Rambler that when he goes to the sale barn to buy a small calf, quote, I call it buying me a lawnmower. When the grass dies down, thanks to the calf, I kill my lawnmower and eat it. There was Pete Ware, the Justice of the Peace in Troop County, who said that he did 40% of his weddings after midnight, including shotgun weddings, though he complained to the Georgia Rambler that people these days are too lazy to bring shotguns to their shotgun weddings.
1: And I also was lucky enough to hear about haunted houses. Yeah, I've been reading your columns, and it it seems like there's a lot of haunted houses in Georgia. Yes, and uh, I had a lot of fun interviewing a woman who was in the Marine Corps with Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, down in Juana she was. Sorry,
0: I forgot he, he was trained as a Marine.
1: Yes. And uh, his nickname was The Creep. And they were on the rifle range one day, and the devil winds were blowing out of the desert. I forget the word for it, the Spanish word. And he was still shooting while the others were smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee because the, they couldn't shoot accurately with the wind blowing from the side. And he kept hitting the bullseye.
0: Okay, full disclosure. Charles' son, Chuck is married to one of the producers of our radio show, Lisa Pollack, which is how we heard about the Georgia Rambler. And when all of us here at our radio show, you're listening to This American Life, by the way, from WBZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. When all of us heard about the Georgia Rambler and this idea that you would get out of the city and just drive into some small town at random and walk around and talk to people until you find a story... You can get all these people from these towns, there's just a couple hundred or a couple thousand people all over Georgia talking about life where they live. It just seemed like a really fun thing to try. And so these last few weeks, nine of us flew down to Georgia. It was producers of our radio show, plus comedian and author Eugene Merman. And we brought the son of the Georgia Rambo, Chuck. There are 159 counties in Georgia. We picked nine counties from a hat. We used an Atlanta Braves baseball cap for that. Each of us went to a different county, spent just a day or two, And we ended up with so many stories that we can't come close to fitting them all into one show, though we can fit seven, which we bring you today. And um, we'll just kick things off here. We'll start things off with Dave Kestenbaum, who is usually a correspondent for NPR's Planet Money, who we took off the economics beat and sent to Georgia to look for some story or person that is unforgettable. And um, Dave, you went to Meriwether County, right near the western border of the state.
2: Yes. And the people of Meriwether County were extremely friendly. They were happy to give directions or recommend a place for lunch but they were completely at a loss when i asked the one question that mattered who is the most unforgettable person in town unforgettable people would say in this town someone showed me a phone book it was thinner than your finger the r's s's and t's were all on the same page there was one person who came up over and over again lots of people mentioned his name The gentleman in question is dead, though I suppose if people talk about you after you die, that's pretty much the definition of unforgettable. People said he helped the poor, he was a good, good man, and everyone knew him by his initials.
3: My friends and neighbors, 11 years ago,
4: I came to live at Warm Springs for the first time.
2: Franklin Delano Roosevelt came to Warm Springs, Georgia, 41 times. Yes, people count. He set up a polio treatment center here. The locals say proudly this was a place he could relax. He would get a fiddle player to come and play at night. But Sylvia Bishop Wright, she lives in an area called The Cove. She told me FDR liked to do something else, something you don't read in the history books.
5: When Roosevelt was coming down here, he especially liked the moonshine in The Cove.
2: Roosevelt liked moonshine.
5: They call it stump juice because they'd they hide it, you know, in the old stumps. So
2: we, in, in, a tree, in a tree stump.
5: In a tree stump. they just hide it down there and cover it up. Am I
6: telling things I shouldn't be telling?
2: <laughs> I was pretty sure this didn't count. You can't go to some small town in search of someone unforgettable and come back with Franklin Delano Roosevelt the former president of the United States, someone everyone already knows. But then I thought, wait, Roosevelt would have been drinking during Prohibition, when it was illegal to sell alcohol, illegal to manufacture it, to transport it. We wrote it into our Constitution, which FDR swore in his oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend. I got more interested when Sylvia left me a voicemail later that day.
5: David, hey, this is Sylvia at the newspaper. And you know how you get to thinking about things, you know, when we were talking about the, uh, the booze, you know, the stunt juice and all, and about how Roosevelt liked it. But I'm telling you, I don't want anything said about Roosevelt that would be wrong. These folks down here fight you about Franklin D. Roosevelt.
2: Then, silence, like she'd covered up the mouthpiece. There was a second voicemail from her.
5: David, this is Sylvia again. I was interrupted right in the middle of my message, but uh, like I said, these people down here love Franklin D. Roosevelt. You know, his little White House is about three miles down the road, and I guess that's why people knew him on such a personal basis. Is he was such a such a good man and and so friendly. And they loved him as president, absolutely. He came in here before he was president also and made friends with everybody. But I just wanted to make sure nothing uh, bad was said about FDR.
2: I went to that place that Sylvia mentioned, the Little White House, where FDR used to stay. He actually died here. The place is a museum now. And I asked about FDR and Moonshine. Two guides told me, yeah, that's the local legend. But they didn't know if it was true. Clearly... This is not a question historians have devoted much effort to answering. It's the 1930s version of, did you inhale? Did you, sir, drink moonshine? Well, did you? So now I found myself driving on back roads into the Georgia woods to see if some president drank moonshine. I stopped at a small house that looked like it had definitely been there since FDR died. A tiny porch with three people just sitting on it. I waved as I walked up. They waved back. There was an old man, an older woman, and a younger guy, Roland Brown. This is the Cove. This area is what they call the Cove. Right, you in the Cove? I took a breath and asked, "Did FDR come here to get moonshine?"
3: Well, I wasn't here. I couldn't tell you about that.
2: Is that something you've heard?
3: Well, I ain't gonna tell you that. I don't know.
2: Is I it repeat feet
3: here? Say, well, you can go over to uh, over the mountain and talk to Mister Bun Wright's daughter, and she might could tell you. Well, Mr. Bun Wright paid the fiddle for him. He lived out here. One of, the, one of Mr. Bun Wright's daughters—only one left living, I think—and the woman's name I'm looking for. Aunt Nee is what we call her. Aunt Nee Newman. I don't even know, really know what a
2: what a first name is. I drove over the mountain and found Aunt Nee's house. The doors were locked. No cars. I stood there for a minute, knocking, trying all the doors, but the house was silent. I gave up and drove away. On the right side of the road, I saw a woman working in a field. What the hell, I thought. I rolled down the window. Do you know someone named Aunt Nee? Aunt Nee? Yes, she said. She's my Aunt Nee. The woman pointed back to the house on the hill where I just knocked on the door. Aunt Nee, she explained, is hard of hearing.
4: She, You may not get her to the door that white house right up on the top of the hill. And she's 90 going on 91. I might have to go up there and get her to the door.
2: Do you think you could come with me? That would be wonderful. i welcome. Thank away. you. The woman, whose name is Linda Carpenter, took me back to the house that seemed empty. Inside, in near darkness, in an armchair, was Aunt Nee, doing some sort of puzzle from a magazine. Me. Aunt Nee. Aunt Nee's full name is Cornelia Wright Newman. Aunt Nee told me, yes, she met President Roosevelt when she was a girl. FDR loved her father's fiddle playing. Because her hearing isn't so good, the way the interview would work is, I would ask a question in what I thought was a loud voice, and Linda would shout it out even louder. So Sylvia told me that FDR used to come here to the Cove to buy moonshine. Uh,
4: Did FDR come to the Cove to buy moonshine? Oh, to buy moonshine? Yeah, he come down there to Uncle Charlie's old store, Gilbert Store, down there, and uh, 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 that's where he met Daddy.
2: Did Did he buy moonshine? Did FDR buy moonshine there? Did he buy moonshine at
4: Uncle Charlie's old store? Uh huh. FDR. Yeah, yeah he'd find out, uh, he was over there one time when uh, he'd come by and he was over there to get in the groceries from Uncle Charlie's and uh, he stopped and he found out where daddy lived and he know he played the fiddle, you know
2: but, but he'd come on yeah. over there okay. but, but, but he bought moonshine also moonshine F- huh? FDR FDR bought moonshine there?
4: I don't know if he did or not. I don't know.
2: You
4: don't know. I don't know either. Okay. Because I was a little a girl. I don't know if FDR bought moonshine or not. I don't know either.
2: By this point, I gave up on the idea of getting an answer. It was only listening back to the recording later that I realized Antony was only saying she never saw him buy moonshine at that particular store. And later she said this.
4: Now he come down there and got moonshine. I know uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt about that, yeah. yeah. and uh, but now where he got it, I don't know. But he didn't get it at my house. So Daddy did fool with it. Mama wouldn't allow that.
2: <laughs> 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 I don't know what Auntie saw or heard that makes her believe FDR drank moonshine. As proof, it's not so satisfying. I did talk with one other person, a local actor who has played the role of FDR and is a bit of an FDR buff. He told me he had heard from people who knew firsthand that yes, FDR drank moonshine. He said a man named Bum Phillips had told him a story about bringing FDR quarts of moonshine, then having to hide them when the Baptist preacher stopped by unannounced. But if you're looking for proof, well, there don't seem to be any photographs. If you want a firsthand account, Aunt Nee is one of the last people living who might've seen Roosevelt take a swig. The truth is that FDR had a complicated life, Warm Springs was one of the few places where everyone knew he had polio. When he died here, it was not with his wife, but with another woman, Lucy Mercer Rutherford. When we say someone is unforgettable, it doesn't mean we remember everything. It can be nice to forget. If you like to picture FDR drinking moonshine with the locals, go ahead. If you don't, it never happened.
7: This is Eugene Merman. I was sent to Hall County. It's a Sunday night in Gainesville, Georgia. On the advice of the woman at the front desk of the Holiday Inn, we head to Wild Wings to find people to tell us about interesting people to find. We're told it's one of the most fun places in town. Also, it's the only place
8: open. We are the most interesting people in Gainesville. Have you ever seen that show Friends? No, you know that show Friends and you know Phoebe, our friends? And she's just like, world peace, love everybody. That's yeah. the
7: way I am. This is Matt Norris. He's 27, but doesn't look a day over 23. He's there with two friends. All three work at Wild Wings. They're hanging out drinking as it's closing up for the night. Matt's just discovered friends on DVD, with the kind of enthusiasm potential rock stars discover the Velvet Underground. My producer thinks he might be gay, but I think he just likes R.E.M. and wants to be an artist. I'm going to refer to him as Artist Matt, because...
8: Wait a second, are all three of you named Matt? We're... we Three mats. If y'all followed us around at work for like a day, I swear to God, you would laugh your ass off for like three days. Like you would have abs. We just the
7: other two mats are Big Matt Matt and Quiet Matt. Big Matt's fun and gregarious. Quiet Matt doesn't say much. Quiet Matt and Big Matt say we just missed the perfect day to hang out with them.
9: (laughs) It was the Fourth of July. It was the fourth of freaking July. We were
8: trashed. We closed the restaurant down.
9: And everybody We, went
10: we out. closed Wild Wings down and we rented a houseboat out on Lake Lanier. And you go to the lake, you go to Cocktail
9: Cove. Cocktail, Cocktail Cove. Cocktail Cove is where like all the boats like daisy chain each other together and just have a massive party. So you just walk across with your coolers of beer and your food and sh and everybody just drinks and flashes and has fun. Okay. I swam I swam. To it was the a boat full of hot chicks, like 20 yards, maybe 30 yards away, and everybody was hollering at him and saying this, that, and the other, but they wouldn't acknowledge anything. So, what did I do? What did Matt Fry do? Matt Fry jumped off the top of the houseboat and swam over there and got him and brought him all back.
7: Big Matt Fry is all about solutions, taking action. Quiet Matt was more like a smoking crocodile floating from place to place. Observing. To
10: be honest, I'm I'm in the water and I'm just treading and I'm swimming away, smoking a cigarette in the water, trying to keep from getting wet. And I turn around and there's this chick on a floaty, and I look and like right in my face, she's got them jokers just strung out there. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm I'm buffing my cigarette and I wasn't moving. I was like I'm gonna stay right here. <laughs>
7: The Matt I keep thinking about the most is Artist Matt, because Artist Matt, partially inspired by friends, wants to move to New York City and follow his dream of becoming a video editor, a totally attainable dream. But he can't, for two reasons. One, he's afraid he'll become homeless and doesn't know he could just move back the day he becomes homeless. And two, he's on probation. Actually, they all are. Big Matt for several DUIs, Quiet Matt for something to do with weed, an artist mat for speeding.
8: I got a, I'm on probation because I got a freaking speeding ticket. It's just a speeding ticket? Who gives a crap?
7: Yeah. Wait, why would you be on probation for a speeding ticket? Is this your ninth one?
8: No. It was my first one, but I was kind of going 40 over. Oh. Was it a school zone? No, but it was a deaf child area. But the kid was at school. What the hell did it matter? It was like 2 o'clock. He should have been at school anyway.
7: Assuming that the speed limit was somewhere around 25 miles an hour, it means he was doing 65 or 70 in a residential neighborhood.
8: You know what the funny thing is?
7: Tell me the funny thing.
8: I had just bought a brand new car and I had seriously just left the dealership. And I lived in Commerce and I know you don't know where that's at, but it's like 45 minutes away from here and I was going down back roads and I had just pulled out of the dealership in this new car and it was awesome I'm looking good I'm jamming you know i am got a new car I'm going to get some chicks tonight so when the cop pulls me over I'm not scared or anything he pulls me over he gets my license and registration and insurance stuff and I'm still jamming i got a new car who gives a crap I'm getting pulled over right now I get out of my car and I'm like looking in the trunk just to see what's going on back there because I've never looked back there I just bought this car as the first car I'd ever bought by myself, checking how the bass sounds. And the officer puts me in handcuffs because he thinks I'm about to like shoot him or run or something. I'm like, what are you talking about? I just bought a car. I'm just freaking excited. And when
7: you explained that to the policeman, was he like, oh yeah, you're just the classic guy who bought a car and is checking it out?
8: Oh, hell, H- you got- hell no. Hell no. Not at all. Good Lord, no. He was pissed. It was bad.
7: What kind of a person, in the middle of being pulled over by a cop, decides to just check out the trunk of their new car? That's a terrible idea. But Artist Matt is an artist. He's Phoebe from Friends. He doesn't realize that success is right at hand. He could move an hour and a half south to Atlanta, where there are TV stations and CNN and TBS and video editing classes, and accomplish his dream. As long as he first discovers the show Cops, he should be fine.
0: Eugene Merman
2: in
9: the
11: in
1: the
0: Not far from Hall County is Pickens County. On April 9, 2006, a soldier from Pickens County, serving in Iraq, was killed by an IED. Specialist David Collins was 24. His body was flown to Atlanta, and a convoy of patrol cars drove from Pickens County down to the Atlanta airport about an hour and a half away to meet the body and escort it back home to be buried. At the time, Alan Wigginton was the chief deputy at the Pickens County Sheriff's Department. He was one of the escorts that day. And he was surprised when they got to the airport and they were told not to drive to some cargo area to retrieve the coffin but to a commercial jet that was parked right at a passenger gate.
9: When we pulled up to the plane, um, obviously I look up and there's people at the window and all the gates because there are five patrol cars with their blue lights on and a hearse. And the plane is is sitting there. Uh, The baggage compartment hasn't opened yet. Um, All of us are just kind of standing there. And the cargo door to the plane opens. Literally, it was chilling um, because as the casket starts down the uh, roller coming out of the airplane and coming down the conveyor belt, not only is everything on the ground around us stopped, literally the buses carrying the staff, everything has stopped. And you look up in the windows and everybody has stopped. And, um, you know, there's kids uh, watching And the military escorts came over to where the casket was. And I'm still standing there watching. And it wasn't until they closed the door on the hearse that people start resuming kind of, you hear some activity, you hear some things, and you look around, you realize that literally for just a minute, the world stood still at that airport uh, while they took that boy's body off that airplane. I was on a plane about six months after that. And I was flying in from Washington. I had been to Washington, D.C. for some event. And on the plane, there was a soldier sitting there, and he sat there, a red-headed pale kid, probably 18, 19 years old. Uh, He uh, was coming home, and the flight attendant came in on the airline and said, "Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to offer you, we're fixing to pull up the gate. I know we're running a little bit late. We're trying to get you out of here. Some of you have connecting flights. But in the back of the plane, there's a young man, specialist so-and-so. And he is coming home for the first time. He's been in Iraq for eight and a half months. And uh, he has a new baby daughter that will be meeting him at the gate that he has never seen before. And I think I'd have probably beat somebody to death if they got out of their seat and didn't let him get off that plane first.
0: Alan Wigginton, he's now a magistrate judge in Pickens County. According to the Department of Defense, as of this week, 140 Georgians have died in Iraq, 38 in Afghanistan. Coming up, those old-timers taking up space at the Hardys in Whitfield County, lingering over their coffee. What do they have to say for themselves? Well, that's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International
9: when our program continues.
0: It's American Life, Amara Glass. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, the Georgia Rambler, in which we imitate an old newspaper column from the Atlanta Journal in the 1970s. Nine of us went to Georgia, each to a different county, drove into small towns that we'd never been to before, walked up to people like the Georgia Rambler uh, reporter used to do, and asked who was the most interesting, unforgettable person in town, which led us to more stories than we could possibly fit into one hour. We head now into Chattooga County. Lisa Pollock went there, though her story begins in a town called Dalton over in Whitfield County.
12: For years, the newspaper in Dalton, Georgia, ran a question on its front page every day. Something like, do you agree with the governor's budget cuts or what's your favorite Christmas meal? Readers called in and the paper printed their answers. The editor back then was a guy named Jimmy Espy. And one night, Jimmy was so busy on deadline that he didn't have time to think of a new question. So instead, he just asked readers something like, Tell us what you think. That's right. Tell the paper what you think. Anonymously. About anything. That next day, the paper got so many more calls than usual that Jimmy never went back to the old question format again. People had a lot to say, and they weren't shy about saying it. Within weeks, Jimmy told me, half the town was in a frenzy after one man called to complain that the old-timers drinking coffee were taking up too much space at the Hardee's on Saturday mornings. The next thing you know, the old timers
13: are fired up. The wives and kids of the old timers are fired up. More people started calling in, saying, "Yeah, I'm tired of sitting in line all day waiting on my sausage biscuit," and and it went on. It went on for a while. The the old people called in too, and and Absolutely. to defi- and what did they say? Uh, a lot of them kept bringing up World War II. <laughs> wait, what is how so? <laughs> you know the the kind of mentality of uh, we beat Hitler, so you just sit down and wait on your sausage biscuit, kid. It, that really was the talk of town. And it seemed like about every two to three weeks, something else would hit that
12: would really fire up the imagination and you would get a lot of calls. About a year and a half later, Jimmy left the Dalton paper and went to the Somerville News in Chautauqua County. That's where I met him. Jimmy's family runs the Somerville News. His brother's one of the owners. His uncle is the editor and publisher. And even before Jimmy was hired, his relatives had decided to borrow his idea from Dalton and invited their readers to speak their minds in a column called Sound Off. Now, I think it's fair to say that in a lot of small southern towns, telling people what you really think, out in public, in front of strangers, is not usually recommended. During my visit to Somerville, the people I interviewed were polite, they were gracious, full of pleasant observations. And then, I opened the Somerville news. The music at the fireworks was pathetic. That's Jimmy reading a recent Sound Off. Only
13: one song had something to do with patriotism. No wonder there are so many drunks around the county. They should have played some Lee Greenwood, Independence, or the National Anthem. I just read where if we get caught on our cell phones while driving, we get a ticket. Well, what about our precious cops who are seen driving around town talking on cell phones and texting? Fair is fair. And one more. I think those students voicing their opinions about the school board's cuts need to shut up. Let the adults hound to the grown up decisions and you teenagers stick with your computer games. That's that's a good one.
12: The fast typist there is Jason Espy, Jimmy's cousin. He's wearing headphones and transcribing the latest batch of sound off calls. Wow, well,
10: that was a long one there. That, that, that lady was talking really fast, and it's like.
12: If sound off were a bar, Jason would be the bouncer. Yeah. Every call, email, and handwritten note, up to 100 submissions a week, goes to him first. If a comment is libelous, unfair, or too racy, it's cut.
10: I don't think I've announced it or anything, you know, but these people out in the community kind of know that it's me. And they'll say, hey, Jason, you better print this one, or I'm going to raise some sand if you don't print this one now. <laughs>
12: he gets sound off, scribbled on napkins, or slipped under the door. A few times, people have even stopped him in public to dictate a sound off on the spot.
10: Well, you know, this, it, it's weird. I hate the sound off, but then again, I, I enjoy sound off. Wait,
12: you hate the sound off?
10: I i, I really do. I hate the sound off. Um,
12: on one hand, I... You know, Jason told me the first problem he has with sound off is the anonymity. It bothers him that people can name names and throw stones, but never own up to it. And there's a second problem.
10: Here is this great opportunity for people to uh, address... Uh, social issues and correct all these injustices and yet most of the time we we use it to talk about Crystal Hamburgers
12: Yes, Crystal Hamburgers that's Crystal with a K, the southern fast food chain known for those square little burgers sold by the sackful. Think White Castle if you're a Yankee There are 77 crystals in Georgia and the fact that not one of them is located in Chautauqua County has inspired many a sound off, counter sound off and counter counter sound off such as to Steve, the owner of the local McDonald franchise, have you considered starting a crystal franchise? Why must I drive 20 minutes to get a crystal with cheese? It's economic insanity to use $5 in gas for a $1 burger. In response to the person driving 20 minutes to get a crystal hamburger, why drive it if you were going to complain? I,
10: I didn't know that crystal hamburgers were so important. You know, you know, in psychology, what is it, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Crystal hamburgers in the South is at the top of Maslow's hierarchy, and uh, all else, you know, is below crystal hamburgers. And well, I tell you what's below crystal hamburgers is fried catfish and potholes. And what happens when people are driving over these potholes?
12: I stuck around the office a bit while Jason transcribed calls.
10: Yeah, let's see. Here's one.
12: That this is today, right? Hey,
10: this is today. There's no telling here.
5: Yes. I believe that um, Stoops County should be behind our local artist that is on an environmental mission.
12: The gist of this woman's message was that county residents should fight pollution. They should protect local waterways. What do you think of that?
10: I I think I put her up to that. What are you saying? What do you mean? I put her up to that to... uh, because uh, I knew you was coming today. I said, please call up one talking about maybe some kind of environmental issue. And uh, we won't say, so, seem so crazy. Are you serious? <laughs> no, <I'm>
12: serious. <laughs> well, I admire that you're admitting that. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Jason worries that outsiders will get a bad impression of where he lives reading sound off. But the impression I got, and I read quite a few of them is simply that there's a lot of people who just really needed to say something, who got to say it. No interruption, no argument. What I liked about Sound Off is that it feels like real life. Most days, there's plenty to complain about. And every once in a while, people surprise you. This SoundOff ran July 8th. I asked Jimmy to read it.
13: A local company closed its doors this past week. Unfortunately, I was an employee that lost my job. I just want to thank Mike, Kathy, and Charlie for the chance to work for you since the year 2000. Thank you, Jarrett family, for not treating me only as an employee, but treating me as part of the family. I wish you all the luck in the future and wish all their former employees well. And that's somebody that just lost their job
12: saying thanks to the people that had to let them go. I came to Somerville to find someone unforgettable. I don't know this man's name, but I won't forget him.
0: So next up is Jane Feltes. Uh, Jane is also the producer of today's show. And Jane, uh, you went to two different counties, counties that sit right next to each other.
14: Yeah, coffee and bacon.
0: And they're named after the foods?
14: No, actually, they're named after people. John E. Coffee and Augustus Octavius Bacon.
0: Augustus Latavius Bacon is quite a name.
14: And they were both in the military. Mm hmm. And they were both senators.
0: Okay. Well, I'm learning a lot.
14: And they were both delicious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Obviously so. So, where do we start? What town?
14: I'm in Douglas, um, which is in Coffee County, at the busiest place I can find in town. And there's roughly around 11,000 people in mm-hmm. Douglas. Yeah. So, I go to um, this place, Flash Foods which is a gas station slash convenience store. It's pretty busy on a Wednesday morning. And um, the clerk there, I noticed she's, like, talking to everybody, so her name's Tamika. So I ask her who's the most interesting person in town, and she says her friend Karen Darby, who works down at the other Flash Foods on the south side of town. (laughs) She always keep me laughing. She just left from down here, matter of fact. All right, I'll go look for her. Thanks, Tamika. So I drive south, I'd say about a mile or two to the other Flash Foods, and I find Karen. But she tells me, no, she's not the one. Who I need to talk to is Adam. Right over here, Adam. Let me show you. Okay. She drags me across the street to this white building that has a red sign and some guitars are hanging in the window. Vickers Music. I ask for Adam. Adam!
11: We got some animals in here. Who is the most interesting person in this store?
14: Adam, she wants to interview you. Adam comes out of a room at the back of the store and makes his way through the stacks of amplifiers, keyboards, guitars hanging overhead... He's tall, bald, kind of looks like a softer, stone-cold Steve Austin. He quickly explains to me that this is his family's business. His folks and little brother can take over helping customers while we talk.
11: We've been here 31 years. Okay,
14: wow. Yeah. And is it going well?
11: Oh, yeah, always. Always. The music business is different from other businesses. When you have a down economy, we thrive. Really? Sure. Um, People stay home. You sit on the front porch and you remember that you had a guitar. When you sit down and you strum a guitar you forget. I just got laid off from the job. I just had this happen or had that happen. So my guitar sales pick up. My overall instrument sales pick up.
14: How did you learn to play?
11: I learned to play with a Willie Nelson songbook and a guitar and I would sit in my room at night and learn the chords and strum right on mom did
14: your dad teach you how to read sheet music or
11: no he gave me a book i told you it was hard <laughs> he gave me a book and said you want to play there it is go learn
14: strange seeing as how his dad owns a music store and used to tour the country in a band adam says his dad just wasn't around that much
11: we were getting off the ground when i was young we were just getting the business off the ground so he was very very consumed with the business uh he was gone he was working all the time uh Daylight to late at night, so didn't see him a lot. But I mean, he made it where I can come in now and have a business. So. Are you married? Uh, yes.
14: And do you have any kids?
11: I have one child. He's two. He's
14: two. You gonna try to push him into the family business?
11: No, I ain't gonna push him in nothing. I, I want him to do what he wants to do.
14: You want to be a different kind of dad than your dad?
11: Already am. In what way? I, I enjoy spending time with him. I, I really. And not to say, you understand that. I mean, not to say that he he didn't, but I am really hands-on. We go fishing every evening. uh,
14: Every evening?
11: Almost every evening. If I can get home before dark, I may, if I have a lot of work going on, we go fish. And then if I have to put him to bed and get up and come back, that's what we do.
14: Mind you, he's saying all of this with an earshot of his entire family, dad included. Will you play a song for me? Yeah. Adam picks up his guitar and gives it a quick tuning.
11: I told you I was (laughs) shot. Remember John Denver? This is a take off of his country roads. Almost hell.
14: foot in front of me and staring directly in my eyes. I wasn't sure, should I look away? Or is this what happens when you ask someone to sing you a song? Country road.
11: Down with that
0: one. <laughs> well, next up, a county right in the middle of the state, and I'm Sarah Koenig. You are the one who went there,
15: right? I was assigned Twiggs County. The county seat is Jeffersonville, a city of about fifteen hundred people, majority African American, majority poor. There used to be a lot of mining jobs here, but now they're all but gone. At just before five p.m., I wandered into City Hall. There's this very nice guy sitting behind the desk who said the most interesting person in town was his boss
14: she she just she just full of life she's been a lot of places and because
15: why what's her what is the story of her life i mean broadly
14: i'll let you i'll let her tell i don't want to spoil it for the people i'm serious
15: is she and you're not just telling me this because like she's your boss and you gotta you gotta suggest your boss
14: well yeah she is my boss but that's not the reason i'm telling you this because i tell you other things about her being my boss but (laughs) you, you wouldn't want to hear those
15: I tracked her down, her name's Sonia Mallory, in a different county, actually, where she was working her other job at a cosmetology school, pretty sad-looking cosmetology school, in the corner of a strip mall. And I'm actually the director of the school. And how long have you been doing that?
16: Well, I've been doing it for about six years, actually. And and I applied for this job because I had a leak in my ceiling, and I was going to, like, do some extra work. But once I got here, I haven't fixed my roof yet.
15: <laughs> the reason she hasn't fixed her roof is because once she realized what was going on with her students, a lot of single mothers, no money, she started pitching in. She and a couple of other teachers pooled their money to buy a year's worth of bus fares for a few students, plus gas money, lunch money. They even swapped clothes. Because
16: you can't afford it at the Salvation Army anymore if you're really poor.
15: It's not so much that Sonia Mallory is a bleeding heart, it's that stuff like this drives her crazy seeing black people struggling, no one helping them out. Plus, she's been there. Which leads us to her other job, the one back in Jeffersonville. But before I get to that, some background. Sonia Mallory is 56. She was born in Jeffersonville, grew up in a tiny rented house, three rooms, seven kids, and bunk beds. Her dad worked on the railroad, which was a good job, but he was a terrible alcoholic, and when he'd come home at the end of the week, he'd terrorize the house, beating up their mom, chasing the kids with a shotgun. The cops never did anything about it. Sonia hated him. Her mother worked for a white family, taking care of their kids and cooking. One day when Sonia and her little brother were walking home from school, a car came along, swerved, and hit her brother, broke his arm and his leg. And it turned out the driver was one of the white kids her mother took care of. In the white family, they never even came to check in on her brother to see how he was doing.
16: And I thought that was the most terrible thing. Here it is, my mama saying about their kids, and one of their kids run over my brother, and you don't see him anywhere. So, I mean, that was a bunch of hockey.
15: Like, was everybody noticing these things, or were you sort of madder about these things than people around you? You know what I mean? Somehow you just feel like, wait, why is nobody else mad about this? Or, oh, were, or was everybody mad about it?
16: No, everybody wasn't, and that's why I found like totally amazing. You know, like nobody else was, because my mom was still with to work for him. As a matter of fact, I think I was mad with her for a while.
15: After Sonia graduated high school, her first order of business was to get away from Jeffersonville. She moved to Macon, joined the military, worked as an Army nurse, then at a VA hospital, and finally moved back to Jeffersonville in the late 1980s and looked around.
16: When I came home, I realized, Jesus Christ, Jeffersonville is the same as it was when I left. There was nothing there. There was no job for the ones that were staying. There was nothing for the kids. They were just sitting around on the streets. It was just, there was nothing.
15: It made her mad made her think about all the unfairness she'd seen growing up. And one day, she got an idea.
16: I had gone to the post office, and the guy that's on council, he was saying something about um, a lot of people having their water cut off. And of course, he didn't know I was in there. And he said, they cut a lot of black
15: folks' water off. (laughs) Sonia said she knew some white folks who hadn't paid their bills either. Their water wasn't getting cut off. And I said to myself, the post
16: office is still in the same place. Everything's still in the same place. The roads are bad. I mean, you know, people not getting any help. So I said, you know what, I'm going to find out when the next election. And I found out when it was and I just ran for mayor.
15: So Sonia Mallory decides to run for mayor in a town that's never had a black mayor, never mind a black woman mayor. Everyone she talked to about it, her friends, her family, they'd all say the same thing. It's not going to happen.
16: They'd say, girl, you know the people going to let you do that because they've been in Georgia all these years. They ain't finna let you do that.
15: And that first election in 1991, they didn't let her do it. She lost by 13 votes to a white guy. Sonia told me black people on the voter rolls were turned away from the polls, while white people who didn't even reside in the city were given ballots. And before you think, yeah, but the loser always claims voter fraud. In the end, a Georgia Superior Court judge agreed with her and threw out the election results. And the Department of Justice sent four federal observers to monitor the do-over election eight months later. But by that time, one of Sonia's sisters was dying of cancer. She was distracted and out of steam. She lost, then tried again, and finally, in 1999, she won. She was Mayor Sonia Mallory. Now she just had to figure out what that actually meant. And no clue.
16: No clue to what the whole big picture entails and I had never been mayor. There was nobody there to pass anything on to let me know what was
15: actually going on, you know, like. There's no process where the previous mayor says, "Here's well, there where we are." Be, but naturally, with essentially no information about how to be mayor, she turned to the only available source, the record. So I had to read the minutes
16: from 1801 up until the time. So my brain is kind of
15: Well, you had to read 200 years of minutes? Uh Uh-huh. It took her most of a year to get through the minutes. Meanwhile, she got threatening letters, heard gossip about how people were saying she wouldn't last. To top it off, her husband got arrested for DUI and some other stuff, spent a year in jail. So her only source of income was her mayor's salary, $250 a month. So there she was, the mayor, sitting at home at night, no water, no lights. And the actual mayor job was turning out to be harder than she anticipated especially the city council meetings. That part of the job, even 10 years later, hasn't been highly productive. There's constant drama.
16: Naturally, that thing was to fight against anything I say. Right now, it's totally amazing, because I can tell you when I first got in, it was all of my council people were Caucasians. Now they're all black. But but I can tell you this, there's no difference. <laughs>
15: <laughs> Be careful with Jackson. <laughs> What? Like what's example what do they do
16: they think their general job is to <laughs> make sure your employees ain't trying to cheat for five minutes and the police department ain't locking up their cousins and they worry more about <laughs> employees taking five minutes more a break than they do sitting down trying to get grant money to to get something for the kids you know i told them that one time you know like Quit fighting against what we need to be doing that's important for the community. If you didn't have enough bows to run for mayor. <laughs> I got a couple left and I'll let you have them.
15: Council members I spoke to admitted the meetings can get kind of twisted up. But they say Mayor Mallory isn't exactly perfect either. That she doesn't keep them informed, takes things into her own hands when she should be consulting them, doesn't follow protocol or unfairly blames them for things. The dysfunction is well-known in town and beyond. It was especially bad in the beginning. Here's the lead of a 2001 Macon Telegraph story. Quote, The Tuesday night meeting of the Jeffersonville City Council lasted either 15 minutes or one and a half hours, depending on whom you ask. The U.S. Department of Agriculture suspended the city's grant application for a $7 million water and sewer expansion. Cities had terrible sewage problems, citing articles in the local paper that described malfeasance, sexism, and racism within the government. The reporter for the local paper in Twigs told me the city council meetings were so ridiculous, she stopped covering them. In her 10 years as mayor, Sonia hasn't brought an airport or a convention center or a mall to the county, all early ambitions. But she's at least put computers in City Hall, gotten grants to beautify the streets, dealt with recurring sewage problems. And then there are successes that are harder to quantify.
16: Just little bitty, minor things like black people would come to City Hall and they were scared to come any further than the window. Which window? The window where you pay the bill. <laughs> Trust me. And, and I would say, come on back. They'd be like, uh-uh. You understand what I'm saying?
15: Sonia says as the country's changed, things have gotten better in Jeffersonville. You can overhear blacks and whites chatting about the weather in the post office, where there used to be silence between them. And you can see blacks working in the courthouse and the supermarket. Sonia says these steps might be small, but they add up.
0: Well, we started our program today with Charles Salter, the newspaper reporter who was the original Georgia Rambler back in the 1970s. And we end our show with Charles Salter, his son, who everybody calls Chuck. For today's show, uh, he went to Elbert County on the coast. But he also
6: looked back at a huge stack of his dad's old stories. I was 11 years old when my dad became the Georgia Rambler. I don't remember him telling us about his new job. What I remember is that he now had a company car, Not an anonymous sedan, but a big white whale of a station wagon with his name plastered on both sides. Charles Salter, the Georgia Rambler. The paper's name appeared on the station wagon, too, along with its motto. Covers Dixie like the dew. That's dew, as in morning dew. My dad was fond of reciting this line out loud, like a favorite verse of poetry. Because my name is also Charles Salter, the genius of this whole marketing ploy, A four-wheeled billboard crisscrossing the state was completely lost on me. Instead, the car was a kick-me sign. I was in junior high school. On the days my dad picked me up from school or baseball practice, I begged him to take my mom's car, or at least park around the corner. I rarely read my dad's column. At dinner, he'd say, I met a real character today and mentioned some town I'd never heard of. I was indifferent. Everyone's father had a job. Big deal. Somewhere around 1976 or 77, during summer vacation, my dad got the idea that I should ramble along with him. So I climbed in that station wagon, and we headed to some dot of a town on the map. To me, the countryside looked like one never-ending crop. I couldn't tell where one farm ended and the next began. One day, we met a farmer named J.B. Lloyd. We sat on the back porch, and my dad asked J.B. about farming without a tractor, just a horse and plow. I didn't ask any questions. I was shy, and about the only thing I wanted to know was, do you have a TV out here? How do you watch Braves games or Charlie's Angels? Reporting in small towns brought out another side of my dad. His southern accent got noticeably stronger, and he sounded like he'd flee Atlanta any minute. Now I live in the city, but I'm not from there, he'd say to people. I was born in Osceola and grew up in Waycross. He'd go on and on about his love of fishing on small ponds and red-eye gravy and fried okra. He was shameless about his country cred. I, on the other hand, was a suburban kid. I thought fishing was boring. I preferred hanging out at the mall. In a way, going with my father on all those Georgia Rambler trips, it made me realize how different he and I were. For the show, I had my dad send me a box of his old columns. As I read them after all these years, I found myself wondering what happened to the people he wrote about. So I called a few. The college senior who moved into the woods to live without electricity or plumbing now lives in Alaska. The small-town narcotics officer who worried she wouldn't find a husband who put up with her job stayed on the force for 31 years and is happily married. And the two farmers who tried to stop the government from putting their farm underwater when it dammed the Savannah River. I found them too. All right, so I wanted to show you. This was... Do you recognize this? Fighting mad. This was the story that my dad did. Mm -hmm. Do you remember my dad?
3: I want to place him. I'm sure I remember him, but it's been 33 years ago, you know. But uh, uh, we had so many people like him. Channel 4, Channel 13, all them television stations. Wendell Cleveland was 36
6: when my dad interviewed him. He's 69 now. The story was about him and his father, Kate Cleveland. The Army Corps of Engineers came into Elbert County wanting to dam the Savannah River and create a 26,000-acre lake by flooding all the land in a river valley. The Cleveland farm was right on the river, right in the path of the lake. They watched their neighbors sell one by one until they were the only ones left. They held out so long that Wendell took to wearing a gun, afraid federal marshals would show up and drag them off the property. They held out so long that finally the Army Corps did something kind of remarkable. After years of insisting they needed all of the Cleveland's land, the Corps buckled and offered Wendell a deal to keep 36 acres. I think I went down there and signed them, and then they moved in that
3: afternoon about 1 o'clock. We went down there and watched them cross. They come, they come from Band's Creek through Yonafruit park. And they had 35
6: bulldozers. Wendell's father, Cade, died two years before this. So from the front of his house, Wendell stood alone, watching the bulldozers come over the horizon, knocking down forest and leveling a field of wheat. And toppling the old chimney that was all that was left of the farmhouse built in 1741, the one his father was born in. They come in just like a gang of ants.
3: You know, it wasn't easy to watch none of it. Uh, It was like more or less giving your whole life away, you know. It was just destroyed.
6: When you build a dam that makes a lake, the water doesn't rush in all at once. Wendell watched for a year as the water came closer, drowning the farm acre by acre. When the lake was full, the water was almost all the way to Wendell's house. On a map, his land looks like a leaf in a big puddle. He and his wife Charlene are surrounded by water on three sides. When I went to see him, Wendell took me down to the lake. You can see it from his front porch. We walked through a field down a little wooded hill. It took two minutes tops. How deep is this water that we're looking at, looking this at in front of, probably, of us? How deep this is, is this? This
3: is somewhere in the neighborhood, of 75, 80 feet. You get on down, it's 85. Somewhere, and you get on down 100 feet and dip at location. A strange
6: thing about, about the lake is that the government put a 300 foot buffer between any developments in the water, so the shoreline looks pristine. There are no gaudy mansions, no big docks. It looks completely untouched, like this is the way it always was. I feel guilty saying this, but it's a beautiful lake. Oh, yeah. It's pretty. The biggest irony in all of this is. Wendell fought this. He'll tell you it destroyed his way of life, but it's also made him a wealthy man. As the land became less valuable to Wendell, it's become incredibly valuable to everybody else. His little patch of property is now prime lakefront real estate. Wendell's land is worth more than $600,000, according to the county tax assessor. All around Wendell, developers are putting in big expensive homes and planning gated communities. Recently, a guy in California called Wendell and said, I want your land, just name your price. But to Wendell, it doesn't make any sense that anyone thinks this land is worth so much. All he knows is that he's on land he can't farm. There's no room for crops. At best, he says, he can keep four cows.
3: This land has got no value.
6: I got nothing but red
3: river hills left. There's really no value. It used to wouldn't have been worth nothing the bottom land and the fields all down below where they covered was what was worth the money.
6: I ask him why he doesn't just sell this land and buy a real farm somewhere else for him and his son. $600,000 he could have his pick. Nobody understands he says. Leaving this place would be like deserting his past his parents and grandparents the farm he took over when he was just 14 because his father was sick with cancer. Wendell still has all the old farm equipment even though he has no use for most of it. Everything is in its place, as if the fields might come back tomorrow and Wendell would be ready. About 100 yards from the house Wendell lives in is his parents' old house. Walking through it, you'd have no idea that they've both been dead for more than 30 years. There's his dad's cigarette tin, a drawer full of knives that his grandfather used to slaughter hogs, furniture dating back to the 1800s, two antique organs, his parents' bed,
3: this is my mom's seat of chest and that's all her clothes she had in there. Been in there ever since we lost her, and in December the 18th, 1968, that's when we lost her. They've been hanging there ever since, and they're still in good shape. We and, why you,
6: and why do you hang on to it?
3: I just love it. I just love knowing
6: her clothes is
3: in there, her dresses and
6: everything. These days, even though the farm is gone, Wendell can still stand on the hill in front of his house with me. And he can point to everything that used to be. Where his grandparents lived, where his father was born, and where his father used to take his Model A car across the Savannah River on the ferry to court his mother. Every time he points though, he's pointing at the lake.
3: You see, where I tell you my uncle lived,
6: that
3: ridge run way on down there. So
6: today... Wendell's living on his daddy's farm, and in a way, I'm doing the same. All those times my dad took me out on his Georgia Rambler trips, I remember being 13 or 14 and meeting some stranger with my dad and being invited into their living room and listening as they opened up and told him some story. Now, I remember how amazing it was that one minute we didn't know this person, and then the next, we were hearing all these things about their lives that they probably didn't tell many people at all. I know my dad took me on those trips to show me small-town life, where he grew up, where my family was from. But what I took from them was a lesson he never intended. I decided to become a reporter. I write for magazines. I've written for newspapers. Just like my dad, that's where I live now.
11: I'm moving on. Using mostly dirt roads Until I find my way Campbellton Road Can't forget Cascade Or the Memorial in Peril There's something about Atlanta That doesn't cease to amaze me Oh, after all You even raise the people that raise
0: Our program was produced today by Jane Feltes and me with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Mennyvar, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semien, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers Julie Snyder, Seth Landis, our production manager, Emily Condens, our office manager, production help from Sean Wen. Special thanks today to Donna and Blood on Jekyll Island, to Jacqueline Clements, Jeff Warren, Angela Reinhardt, Stacey Dixon, Gerard Nathaniel, Bill Vanderford, Corporal Jason Smith, Chief Billy Boney of the Twig Sheriff's Department and all the people we talked to in Georgia who just wasn't time to fit into today's program. Dave Kestenbaum, who you heard tracking down FDR's Georgia history, can be heard with his Planet Money colleagues on their twice-weekly podcast, a co-production with our show, www.npr.org slash money. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can sign up for our free weekly podcast. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, Easy Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who remembers the time. It was a while back when his wife took him to this private swimming pool, with Frank Gorshin and Jack Nicholson.
10: And I look and, like, right in my face, she's got them jokers just strung out there.
0: I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. China, you'll always be home.
6: PRI, Public Radio International.